0: our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Well, we continue in Judges, now chapter 10, the last part of chapter 10. And you'll find this if you're using the Pew Bible on page 210, 211 actually. And again, this is a long passage to read, and hope you'll hang in here with us as we read it. Uh, For that reason, I'm going to break it up a little bit with some comments along the way, and then close with uh, two primary points. You should be out by one or two (laughs) o'clock. Just settle in, no, <laughs> kids would be tearing the rest of the church down, and <clears throat> Actually, there are five dialogues here, um, five episodes. And one has already occurred, we dealt with it last week, and this is the dialogue between Israel and Yahweh. Yahweh is the basic word for the God of Israel, if you're unfamiliar. You may have heard Jehovah before, but kind of the pronunciation nowadays is Yahweh, the God of Israel. The, we think the true and only God, okay? So Israel and Yahweh, then it's Jephthah and the leaders of Gilead, then Jephthah and the enemy Ammonites, then Jephthah and his daughter, then Jephthah and Ephraim. And you'll notice as we go that the action parts of the passage are are pretty slim. They're short, and that's not where the real drama is. The drama is in the dialogue. And we'll see in the relationship of the dialogue what's really being said to us and I think, what can help us most in um, living out the new life that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So, just you'll, you'll see, obviously, this this dialogue. But the, the dialogue, first dialogue episode, we've already read. And it was basically Israel coming to God saying, We repent, we're in trouble, get us out of this. God says, basically, let your gods get you out of it. And we're left not sure, really, if God's going to get them out of it. But we see Israel manipulating God, and that's going to come up later in, in Jephthah's own approach to God. So, verse 17, we hear the, the issue, the Ammonites were in, endangering, but now they, they come on the scene. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And already there's an indication Ammonites are called to arms. They're ready. Israel is not. They just come together. And no leader is there. They're just asking one another in anxiety, what are we going to do? And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, parenthesis, verses 1 through 3. Got to give a little background to Jephthah, how he came to be. Now, Here's, in the midst of this scene, let me tell you, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and it's likely here that the writer is saying kind of that the town of Gilead was his father in, in a way. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, which ironically means good, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Now, it's likely that Jephthah was made a legitimate son by his father And they wrongly excluded him from the inheritance. And that's why he brings the issue up to the leaders of Gilead. Because they were a part of that under the bribe or influence of this this family. Uh, So he was driven out wrongly. Likely too because they saw in him a threat. One of the commentators says, when I present this story, I have all these short, squatty guys, and this one man who looks like a Greek god. And that's kind of the picture here. We need to get him out of here. He's dangerous. And also, he's not he doesn't look like us. Maybe he's not even one of us. Maybe that's not even his father. You know, somebody who looks so different and so much greater than the rest of him, they can use that as an excuse. So you get a feel for what's happening here of getting Jephthah off the scene. But even in the land of Tove he proves to be a leader and proves to be this strong guy that can pull people together. And it's likely that what's described as went out with him is they plundered the area unmolested because you didn't mess with Jephthah. So uh, it's kind of like, although William Wallace in the story, in the movie, had character. Uh, Jephthah, he, and we find out he has a certain character. But it's like bringing Jephthah on the scene. We need William Wallace to put us together, to pull us together against the English. So, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. It shows their confidence. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Now, the word leader is likely indicates a military leader. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? And their collusion with his family. Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And you can see the parallel here between the way God responds to Israel in the passage we read last week. Why are you coming to me? What about your idols? So there's a picture, the way Israel's coming to God, the way they treated God, it's also the way they treated his servant. You know, we're going to manipulate you, we're going to use you, we're going to do that to God, we're going to do that to you. And he answers in the same way, yeah, what is this? I don't don't buy it. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've turned to you now, and uh, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites. And be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They up their offer. We'd like you to be our military leader. He says, that ain't going to do it. They say, we'll make you head over everything. It's a different word used here. So uh, he's shrewd, of course, in his approach to them. Jethro said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Episode 2. Okay. Episode 3 now. And notice it's dominated by dialogue again. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? Already assuming his kingship. Right? The way he speaks in the first person. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. The Arnon is the southern river that runs west of, of Israel. And the Jabbok is the northern river. And between those two rivers, west of Israel, is the disputed land, uh, Israel has inherited it and won it, we'll see. But they, the, the false idea that Ammonite, Ammon's putting out is that, hey, you came and took it away from us. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, and here are four reasons that he will give to them. The first you might say is historical. This is from Ralph Davis. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of Ammonites, But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab. For the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. So basically he says, look, we, didn't, we did not take Edom. We did not take Moab. We asked them to pass us, let us pass through. When they wouldn't, we skirted around them. And then we came to this territory you're talking about. Okay? That's what he says so far. So he's showing that even in these other two cases, we did not take it from them uh, on anything here west of, of uh, the Jordan. But then he goes on. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. This is the disputed territory. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. So here's his theological argument. First of all, you've never owned this portion of the land. It belonged to the Amorites. That's the first thing historically. So you're, you're talking out of your hat here that you, didn't, you never had this. Secondly, we fought to get this because we were just trying to safely pass through, but he declared war on us, and so now the territory was up for whoever won the war. And look, God gave it to us, the God of Israel. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited this country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arna to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has possessed before us, we will possess? And so here's the theological argument. Historical argument. You never had this to start with. Second argument, God gave it to us in battle, so we've had it. Third argument uh, is what you might say is precedence. uh, Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them while Israel lived? And so that's, he says, probably at this point, because he mentions the god of Chemosh, which belongs to Moab, and now he mentions Moab here, Uh, The Ammonites, I know this is a little confusing, but the Ammonites who were east of this territory had probably taken over Moab, so he can describe them in terms of that god as well. And now he's saying, since you now own Moab and are the king of Moab, what about former kings of Moab? What did they do with Israel? And he says, the precedent is they did not go against Israel. He blessed Israel. Now you, the inheritor of Moab... You're going to come against Israel? Not a good move. Not a good move. You're not following in the line of history of what's gone on with Moab. Uh, So finally then, there is the argument of silence. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in the uh, uh, Ereir and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? We've been here 300 years. Right, And so now, suddenly, this is our land. What are you talking about? It, it was never your land. We won it, but God gave us uh, the, the victory for it. Uh, the king of Moab didn't go against us, and so you should now, and uh, if, if so, if it was yours, why have you just let us live here for 300 years? So in this, it's obvious that this guy who lived in Tov and raided cities and stuff, was really a smart dude. He's really a, a shrewd uh, negotiator. And whereas this is not going to win the king of Ammon over, it gives him the moral high ground. It gives builds confidence. It shows what kind of leader he is, and it gives a, a moral basis on which they can fight Ammon. see. So this is very important to show who he is as a leader. "'I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me.' The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the uh, people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him, uh, sent to him. So he appeals to, to uh, Yahweh, appeals to the God of Israel as being the final judge over all things. And this is a, uh, an excellent High point for him, and I would like to read from Barry Webb on this uh, point of, of this note uh, for at uh, this this event when he uh, appealed to the judge he says. The theological summary of his case is primarily for the ears of Yahweh, on whom Jephthah now depends utterly for a favorable outcome. His appeal to Yahweh to judge between him and his adversary today is, in effect, a declaration of war. At the same time, it expresses a belief that the issue will be settled in heaven by the decision of the divine judge before it is settled on earth by trial of arms. So he's appealing to the sovereign will of Yahweh that he's the one that will decide this. And then it will spill out in, in this life. So absolute trust at this point in Yahweh. It is neither Jephthah himself nor his adversary who will have the final say, nor Chemosh or any other god but Yahweh. At this critical moment, Jephthah's belief in the unrivaled supremacy of Yahweh shines through. It is his finest hour. And when you see other things happen in this episode that's about to follow, you can scratch your head and wonder why is Jephthah found in Hebrews 11. For those of you who don't know, Hebrews 11 comes to this argument as he's trying to encourage people who are are failing and in danger of turning away from God to return to their Judaism and reject Jesus Christ. In the midst of this, he gives them this argument. This spilling out of the people of faith in the Old Testament, one after another, after another, how they believed God. So you should believe God. And this one, believed God. You should believe God. To encourage them to continue in faith and difficulty and suffering as the people in the Old Testament did. And then he lists people from judges and includes among them Jephthah. And he also includes Samson, which is another that makes us scratch our head when you see the story of Samson. But it is likely because of this right here, this, this faith in Yahweh as the absolute judge, even though, as we're going to see, his former life and mentality breaks through in a terrible way in dealing with his daughter. But as terrible as that is, I hope it will give us some encouragement when old things break in in our lives, even though we trust in Christ. That was the third episode, Uh, Jephthah's Tragic Vow is the title for the next section. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites, probably gathering forces along the way and and likely on the, on the eastern side of Manasseh, and that's why the eastern Ephraim is angry later, we'll see. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, what you will see in this episode... This stanza of the story is that this vow takes over the story. Like the history of the battle with the Ammonites gets short treatment. But this becomes the, over, the overlaying issue now and will govern the story at this point. Again, it's dialogue, not action. This dialogue is what's so critical at this point. And even when he makes the vow... It it introduces the possibility that a human being will walk out. Could be an animal, but the way he puts it to meet me even seems to favor a human being. So he's throwing the dice, see? He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's just making this vow, whatever comes out. And this was likely to try to impress his enemies. It was probably public, even made known to the Ammonites that, hey, he's he's so sacrificed everything, he's got... He's going to offer up something for burnt offering, which could strike fear in the Ammonites. Oh, he really means business. He's all in. But it's viewed as a horrible and terrible thing. So Jethro crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Kiramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Okay? That's it. That's it for the action. Now to the real issue at hand, the real drama of this story. Then Jethro came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. The irony that she came out rejoicing. And that would mean her death. It's to grip us. She was his only child, just like Abraham's only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And by the way, the judges' short list of minor judges before and after it just talks about their abundant households. Their abundant households, how many people they had, how many sons were born. And here's the contrast he had one daughter. And he sacrificed her. He had no legacy. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, and even here it's more focused on himself than even his daughter. Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble to me. Yeah, what about her? Come on, you know. Duh. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And nobly she said uh, to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. See, the open the mouth was a a synonym for the vow. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord literally has done uh, this to your enemies. So the same word, do to me as the Lord has done to your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. "'Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains "'and weep for my virginity, I and my companions.'" And she wept for her virginity because even greater than death was the fact that she had no children. She had no legacy. She had nothing to leave, but would would it appear be someone forgotten, not remembered by her children. And so he said, "'Go.'" Then he said, he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, and discreetly, it says, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, see, the tragedy that she had no children. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days of the year. So she was remembered, and there was continually lamenting over her situation. Finally, Almost through. The fifth stanza. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to the fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I, my people, had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their land. he has a different interpretation of things. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim. They called Gilead, you're just merely fugitives running from us. Uh, And you you were a part of it, but you're nothing. You're just fugitives from Ephraim. It was turned on their head. You Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said. So they called Gilead, you're the fugitives of Ephraim. And then they, the, the Ephraimites themselves became the fugitives of Ephraim. There's a lot of humor here, bitter humor. And when any of the fugitives of the Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. He could not pronounce it right. Now this is this is dark black comedy here. Okay, black comedy. You can imagine a guy comes. He's a Reubenite. He claims to be a Reubenite who lived in the uh, east, and he comes to the forts, and they've set up uh, a little border patrol, right? And say, "Oh, you're from Reuben? Yeah, yeah. Reubenite. Yeah." Going over to visit some friends in uh, East, east uh, Israel there over the Jordan. Oh, well, good, good. Uh, show me your passport. Shows the passport, you know, and all those papers. And so how long are you going to be there? Oh, probably two weeks or so, I don't know. And then I'll be back. Yeah, is this business or pleasure? Yeah, okay, well, good. I, ho- I hope you have a good good trip. But then kind of in Colombo style. Oh, just one, one, one more question. Just say the word shibboleth. Sibboleth. Off with his head. You're dead. Because they couldn't pronounce it. Because this new pronunciation of shh was there in the east, but it hadn't spread to the west. See, it was an in way to talk. But you grew up without it, you couldn't say it. Kind of like at the end of the Christmas story. And they're at the uh, Chop Suey, uh, what is it? The Chop Suey Palace. Eating what's called Chinese turkey, which was a duck with its head that, and it's a great scene. You can see it on YouTube with the mother screaming and laughing when they cut off the duck's head. But that's not anything to do with what we're saying. <laughs> but what does have something to do is they were trying to sing Deck the Halls. Deck the Halls with boughs of holly. Wah, 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 rah, 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 rah. You know, he's he trying to correct them. That's what you have here. They just can't say it. And because they can't say it. And it, as one commentator says, this also shows what nincompoops they were, that they wanted to participate in the war, and they couldn't even pronounce a word. You know, Bitter, bitter uh, irony here in a, kinda, in a dark comedy. They slaughtered them at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 fell. A couple of things that I want to close with and talk to you about. There's certainly uh, the thing to say here about this passage, this latter passage, is how uh, this shows, and this I think is a minor theme here, but it certainly we can at least bring it to mind that the Ephraimites weren't rejoicing over the win and the you know the victory over Ammon. What were they concerned about? They were concerned about their participation in it. They were concerned about their honor. Why didn't I get to have the accolades? Why wasn't I put on the pedestal in this win? And so it's sad that in many cases, and this is, it infects leadership in the church in a terrible way, that we can't rejoice in God's saving work unless we're at the center of it. And What's so bad about that is that we... Embedded, embedded in our uh, supposedly desire that Jesus be honored, embedded in it is our own glory that we want and not his glory. Our own recognition, celebrate me. This stowaway motive, this parasite feeding off the salvation of others is the personal glory that I can receive from it. Like the Pharisees, why did they pray, fast, and give? It was all so that people could see it. People could recognize it. And so we have to ask that question of my heart, of our hearts. Why? Why do I want what I want? What are my motives? Why can't I rejoice just as much that Bob brought this guy to Christ or this pastor has a growing church, even if my church isn't growing? Praise God that people are being brought to Jesus Christ. Or, woe is me, because I'm not the one getting the accolades. Now, it may be important for me to find out what Bob's doing. It may be that he's doing things that I'm not, etc. But uh, we must not be Ephraimites in that regard. But more centrally in this story is this... Amazing vow that Jephthah made right on the heels of his declaration of his faith in God. It's shocking. It it doesn't seem possible that the guy who made this declaration of the sovereign God and judge over all things could turn around and not believe in his goodness, not believe in his attendance of, of him in the midst of this war. And so he apparently has to manipulate God. He has to do something in order that God would turn his way, uh, prove to God his sincerity, win him over because he probably isn't going to do anything for me in the end. And what's so sad about this, is, as Webb also talks about in his book, is the past breaks in on the present. Let me just read this section. The vow takes us much deeper into Jephthah's psyche and shows us a man still haunted by his past. Publicly, he's argued that Israel is the innocent party and expressed confidence that God's judgment will be in their favor. Privately, he remembers that he himself has been the innocent party in a dispute and found his rights disregarded by those who should have protected him. The emphatic infinitive, if you will indeed give, expresses his deep angst. Will Yahweh, after all, reject him too? Jephthah has everything to lose if the battle goes against him, including his life. But also his position in his clan and tribe, and that clearly means a great deal to him. Formerly an outcast, he's now head and leader of the inhabitants of Gilead. But if he loses the war, the whole cycle of rejection will begin again. If Yahweh rejects Jephthah now, so too will Jephthah's people. He will be an outcast again. The deep irony is we know that the rejection Jephthah so much fears is a phantom. You know, you're looking outside and you just want to say to him, No, no, you don't have to do it. God is with you. God will enable you to do this. But his past, it's like his past erupts into the present. His past of fears, past of his coping mechanism, how he operated, breaks into the present. And that happens with us, who we are true believers. We trusted God. We have great confessions of faith. And yet at times we go through a difficult thing and we think that God has turned against us. Or we do something wrong and we begin to bargain and bribe God. We don't believe in his love. We don't believe in his favor. Our past erupts into the present. And we begin to act toward Yahweh like Israel acted toward Yahweh in trying to deal with him as we saw earlier. Jephthah's is doing the same thing. It's not trust and submission. It's... It's like you're almost boxing with God, trying to manipulate him. You're thinking, I know he's not really got my favor, and if I can duck his hits, maybe I can convince him to do something good for me, like a mouse trying to get cheese out of a trap without getting hit by it. That's really our attitude sometimes with God, that I've got to avoid his blows, but I still need some stuff from him. So we're trying to use Him, manipulate Him. We don't trust Him. Like it says of Israel in several Psalms, that they didn't trust God that He would give them the good land. They didn't believe in His salvation, it says. And so our past unbelief, our perspective uh, apart from Christ, our coping strategies, our kind of survival mode, in some cases we fall back into lusts. Pornography and other things that were a pattern. So it's kind of like our, our sensual safety net, our, our go-to place in pressure. The lust lifeboat at the time. Fear and anxiety sometimes begin to dominate us. And we think, I oh, can't reach out. I can't expose myself to no different people. I, I can't do these things. I'm going to fall back into my pattern of protecting myself. But no long, no matter how long this has been, God, God wants to spring you loose, you know, continue to spring you loose so that you walk in new ways and you're not dominated by that past. I would liken that past to uh, the old, I think we've talked about this before, But there's a series of, of wasps that lay their eggs in spiders. And one of the most amazing ones is this wasp lays its egg in a spider and in some way, the actual DNA changes in the spider so that though he makes his normal round circular web for a couple of weeks, at the time that they're ready, the spider amazingly changes the structure of his web so that he drops down, forms a cocoon, and becomes the place where the larva will eat and feed. Amazing. Amazing. that could happen, that a spider could be taken over, uh, his mind hijacked, as one scientist put it. And I think that's a good image for us. Sometimes our spiritual minds are hijacked by our fears, by our lusts, by our past, by the patterns we try to operate out of. And that's what happened with Jephthah. The encouraging thing, no excuse, and we want to Defend ourselves against this is that Jethro is listed in Hebrews 11 as a true believer and yet succumbed in this terrible way to do a terrible thing, yet he was a true believer. So it encourages us that if I've failed in some way, if I've failed in a repeated way, if I've struggled with something for years, even still. God is at work in my life. Still, God has laid hold of me and holds me by His hand to keep me and finish His great work. Which leads us to this final interesting point about this passage that Jephthah was the one rejected and despised by man. Okay? The one rejected and despised by Israel, even as Israel, as as Yahweh was rejected and despised by Israel, and yet Israel came to the rejected and despised one for salvation. And so Jephthah is this, and in that way foreshadows our Lord Jesus Christ, who was. The one rejected. It says that he was the stone that was rejected by men. But this became the chief cornerstone on which God built his people and his whole future kingdom. And so God chooses what men rejected. Men rejected Jephthah. God chose him. Men rejected Christ and thought they had done away with him. God took that rejected stone and said, I'm building my whole future upon this one. And the glorious thing is, this rejected one, Christ Jesus, is the perfect leader, unlike Jephthah. His words are good. His words are solid. His words can, you can depend upon. His words you can bank upon. He never is out for himself. He humbled himself, even to the point of death, sacrificing everything, not for his own safety. And in the words of Peter, he did this, not crying out in vengeance against people, but it says he entrusted himself, 1 Peter 2, to him who judges righteously. So more than uh, Jephthah, who could talk about God being the judge, but he couldn't live it out, our Lord Jesus lived it out. To the full to say, I entrust myself to my righteous judge and I sacrifice myself gladly to him. And he calls us and gives us his spirit, not just a spirit that empowered Jephthah for a particular task to win, but the spirit that empowers us to live out so that Peter can later say, continue to do good in trusting yourself to God who cares for you. So we don't have to opt out for self-protection. We don't have to manipulate God. But we should be able by His grace to look into His face and believe His favor and to face whatever He gives against us. Whatever He allows to come upon us. Because He, unlike Jephthah, we have the statement, God has shown His love in Christ Jesus. We have something Jephthah doesn't have. He has demonstrated his love in Christ Jesus. There's a little silly thing that Blake Sheldon does in The Voice, if you've ever watched that, whenever they call the different names of people and they call him Blake and he's sitting there going like this. Just a goofy thing. This is Blake Sheldon, this is Blake Sheldon. But when you are faced with tragedy, loss, even your own failure in sin, And you come to God and you wonder, do you love me? Is your favor upon me? His finger is just like this. It's pointing to the cross. Pointing to the cross and saying, this is my final word. My case rests. I have given my son for you. And everything that I do for you follows in the train of that. Everything I do for you can be interpreted in that way. And so you don't have to strike out on your own. You don't have to make deals. You don't have to bargain. You don't have to bribe. I am all in in my love for you. We can rest in that. And in that way, in a sense, live recklessly for his glory and hazard ourselves for the lost. Hazard ourselves for those that are hard to love. Because we are loved. We are loved. And we don't have to protect ourselves. Protect ourselves. We have the despised and rejected one. And God has made him the cornerstone. And he has built us on that cornerstone forever. Praise God for his salvation in Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord God. How we thank you for our true Jephthah our true Savior, who is a Savior indeed, who sacrificed himself and manifested the glory of God, that God is the one who doesn't abandon his children, even as Jephthah abandoned his own daughter for his own self-protection. But, O God, O Lord Jesus, you're one who abandons your own protection, who hazarded your own life for our sake so that we who are lost, we who are sinners, we who had darkened ourselves, we can be rescued by your sacrifice and your love. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that passages like this cause us to realize that in this world, in this life, there will be failure on left and right, leader after leader, but the true leader of all things, the Lord Jesus, will never fail us. And that we live in such darkness as, as has come upon Israel during the time of Judges, as these last three Judges just continue to show how darkness spills out and your people suffer in the world. There will be that one day. When this mighty Savior comes and He takes all darkness away and brings His everlasting light upon this world and all creation will be set free and we will receive our new bodies and all the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in. Oh Lord, thank You that in the midst of failing and pain and struggle, we have that final day when all things will be made new by our glorious Savior. We rest in you, Lord, hold us. Give us faith in you. Give us eyes to see your love for us in Christ Jesus, and then to hazard ourselves for the glory of Jesus. We ask in His name. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. My Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. rain, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?